So this morning, it's my privilege to be able to bring the Word of God to you all. We're going to carry on on our series in Exodus. Um, why are we doing a series on Exodus? There's a, a few different reasons. Uh, first of all, it's a very important historical account uh, of the story that led Israel. We, we see a lot of uh, the context that informs a lot of the rest of the Bible, and as well, uh, as you go through the New Testament and you listen to Paul and his letters, there's often a lot of reference being made back to Moses. So he's definitely a very important character in, in that history. Also, uh, as Rich alluded to last week when we were looking at uh, chapter 2, uh, Moses is what we call a type for Jesus. That's not to say that Moses is like Jesus. I mean, as we saw last week, Moses was a murderer, which uh, really disqualifies him as being any similar to Jesus, but there's always going to be these parallels. Well, as we look at the life of Moses, we can see a direct path that points to Jesus. Uh, another example of those types would be David that we often see as, uh, like, his, you look at the overall of his life, it always points back to the story of Jesus and the cross. And then finally, there's uh, the subtitle that we have for this series, which is Freedom with Purpose. And it's, uh, it's more than just a subtitle, something to fill the space on the screen. Uh, it's also a lens that we can use as we look through Exodus to, to identify and understand the text. And it forces uh, us to make a certain contrast with uh, this modern idea of freedom that we have, which uh, is very undefined somehow. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Exodus 3. Makes sense, since it was Exodus 2 last week. Uh, last week's was very heavy in content. We went through the whole chapter in one go. And to be quite frank, I'm still kind of digesting all the information that was put out. So uh, this week, we're going to be splitting Exodus 3. So we're going to be looking at just the first six verses of Exodus 3. Um, we're going to be taking a look at this text to understand the holy character of God. And the topics that we're going to talk about are holiness, reverence, and humility. So I'm going to start by reading the text that we're going to be studying this morning. So Exodus 3, verse 1 to 6. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So this morning we're talking about the story of the burning bush. And there's a, a certain mystique about it. Uh, it's a Sunday school favorite, if uh, you, you grew up in Sunday school. Uh, but it has this supernatural element to it. And I feel that like sometimes we have this tendency of dismissing the supernatural in the Bible. We're like, Oh, yeah, burning bush. But that, that was biblical time. That was back then. It was normal back then for them to see something like that. But in this story, we, we get a completely different opinion of that because Moses was not just a farmer 
or a peasant. He had grown up in the house of Pharaoh. And as we see later on when he comes back and there's a 10 plagues, Pharaoh had in his employ some very powerful magician that would have been able to do all kinds of mystical things. Uh, and surely Moses would have been witness to some of those. So for him to see the burning bush and for it to pique his curiosity means that it was something special even for, for him. Um, something special about this story too is that it marks the beginning of Moses' ministry. Um, as we saw in chapter 1, it's mostly just historical context. Chapter 2 is about how Moses tried to go at it all on his own. It doesn't really work out too well for him. But chapter 3, right here at the burning bush, is where the story of the liberation of Israel truly begins. That's the, the first step on the journey to bring Israel out of Egypt. So let's situate ourselves a little bit in terms of the situation that this story takes place. Uh, the first thing that we learn is that Moses is leading this flock around Mount Horeb. Uh, Horeb is probably not a name that you're very familiar with with in the Bible. Um, Horeb really is a mountain range, and Mount Horeb is just called that way because of uh, it being the largest peak in the range. That was kind of a, a way that they would name things, but you probably know it under its more usual name, which is Mount Sinai. Uh, and now for those of you that are starting to connect the dots, it's the same mountain that kind of marks the end of the liberation of Israel from Egypt, where uh, God gives down the Ten Commandments to, to Moses and everything. Uh, and so it's really interesting to see that there's a certain amount of continuity in that story as well. The thing that we learn that Moses is doing there is that he's guarding the sheep for his father-in-law. Uh, that sounds very innocuous at first, but there's actually quite a bit to unpack there. Uh, the first thing is that if we look at Genesis 46, 33, 34, that's the story of when uh, Joseph's family tries to escape famine and goes to Egypt. Joseph is kind of coaching them to make sure that they maximize their chances for Pharaoh to let them stay. And what he tells them is, well, when you're in front of Pharaoh, just tell him that you're all shepherd, and that your entire family is all shepherd. Because for Pharaoh, being a shepherd is an abomination. That was a very Egyptian cultural thing. And essentially, the, the goal of Joseph telling that that was just so the Israelites would have their own land given to them. But it gives us an opening into Moses, having been raised as a son of Pharaoh, would have had this same understanding. That being a shepherd is an abomination. So now think about the fall from grace that Moses went through. He was a prince of Egypt very potentially like an heir to the Egyptian throne, which was at the time one of the most dominant civilization on the planet. And he goes from that to being the very thing that that civilization despises. It's also interesting to see that he's being a shepherd in the wilderness. Now, when you hear wilderness, we have this very North American or Western European conception of what the wilderness here. Actually, I'm sure some of you just actually enjoy going in the wilderness. Uh, for us, this idea of the wilderness is a, a nicely temperate forest with a good level of humidity, some shade a little bit everywhere. Really, only two inconveniences, poor access to washrooms and mosquitoes. 
But when we talk about the wilderness in the context of the Bible, we're talking about it in a completely different geographical area. The wilderness is a bare and arid desert. There's just nothing there. It's scarcity all around. Even as we talk about a bush, uh, to some level, the idea of just Moses seeing a bush would have been special enough, uh, notwithstanding that the bush is burning. Um, But the wilderness has a very uh, special connotation in the Bible because the environment that Moses is in at this time, that the Bible called the wilderness, is the same environment that Jesus goes to right before he starts his ministry when it's said that Jesus goes in the desert for 40 days to prepare. Uh, in some translation, it will say Jesus went to the wilderness for, 30, for 40 days. And so we also have this idea that God, regardless whether the Old or the New Testaments, will use this period of scarcity, this period of being in the wilderness, to forge people for ministry, whether it's Moses or whether it's Jesus. So, now that Moses has gone through 40 years of being humbled, being um, built into the person that he is, being in the desert, he's now married, he has a, a job being a shepherd, we could call it family responsibility. Um, now that God has prepared him, after years and years of trying to do his own thing, he's finally ready for God to present himself to him. But that meaning comes with a warning. Because God says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. What does he mean exactly by holy ground? I don't think he's talking about the place, because the place itself has nothing really special about it. No, what makes it holy is the fact that God is present at that very moment. In fact, uh, we see something very similar a little bit later in the Bible in Joshua 5. If you're familiar with the story of uh, the fall of Jericho, right before uh, the, well, you can call it an attack, but when they circle the city seven times and the, the wall crumble, Joshua goes out in the wilderness to pray and comes face to face with God. And again, uh, sorry, with an angel of God. And again, it's the same instructions. It's like, take off your sandal for this is a holy ground. That is a pattern that we see also repeat itself throughout the Old Testament. Wherever God decides to dwell among his people is considered a holy ground. Uh, There's an urban legend that has been passed on through the the millennia from the Jewish tradition that when the priest would go in the Holy of Holies, they would type a rope around his leg. Um, it's just an urban legend. There's no evidence that anyone ever actually did that. In fact, the, the biblical text seems to hint that that was not really a consideration at all. Um, but just to, to put in context the importance that the priestly class of Israel put into that distance between them and the true character of God, um, you have to understand how they organized um, all their, their ritual based on the instruction that were passed to them in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, God would first dwell in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, and then eventually in the temple when the temple was built. And they were built to more or less the same specification. Uh, it was a rectangular building. Uh, you can imagine it about the size of a, a 
Catholic cathedral for the temple and a smaller version of that for, for the tabernacle. And there was two sections. There was the holy and then the holy of holies. And most priests were allowed in the holy section, but only under very specific circumstances where priests were allowed in the holy of holies because that's where God dwelled. Um, and so the old idea of tying a rope around a priest's foot when they actually had to go in was out of that belief that um, if somehow the priests screw up or they didn't prove themselves to be worthy enough uh, and they died, then the other priest could just pull him back out without having to go in there themselves. Again, no evidence that that was actually a thing that was done, just a, a story that has been passed down in, in the Jewish tradition. And so, when we look at all this difference, there's also this idea of coming face-to-face -face with God and how much of a shock that is for us as human. Um, if we skip ahead a little bit more, and not to spoil any uh, future sermon that we'll have in Exodus, but if we skip to Exodus 33, uh, Moses goes as far as just straight up asking God, hey, can you show me your glory? And this is, what the, this is what God answers in Exodus 33, verse 19, 20, and 21. Um, well, I'll go for verse 20. It says, But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. These texts are really highlighting the complete inability that we have as human to really be in the presence of God. There's this... Um, Ritual that is described in all of Leviticus 16. I'm sure that's one of the chapters you skipped in your Bible in a year thing because it's very dry. But it describes all the different things that the priests have to do to perform the ritual called the Day of Atonement. It involves sacrifice offering, involves multiple baths, fragrant perfumes, uh, some very special clothes and undergarments, and process of going through and all that is to atone the priest himself so that he can stand uh, not face to face but just in the presence of God in the holy of holy but also to atone for all of Israel it's a very very complicated process so so where does that idea of separation comes from because it's it's a stark contrast with what we see in Genesis where God is just walking around the garden of Edens with Adam uh, he's among its creation, and he's right there. Well, the difference is the fall. It's how sin came into this world and corrupted us all. God, in his perfection, cannot abide by sin, and he cannot physically be in the same place as sin. In today's culture, uh, we, we tend to, to value the self quite a bit. Um, it's easy for us to, to accept that, oh, yeah, uh, my personal lived experience is right. Uh, we think that we have self-righteousness. Culture tells us that we're king in our own kingdoms. It tells us that we can, we're free to do whatever we want. We're free to believe whatever we want. We're free to worship whoever we want. Really what culture is telling us is that we're all princes and princesses of Egypt. But the reality is, as human, as humans, and I mean me first, we're so corrupted by sin that the mere fact of being face-to-face -face with God would be enough to just completely erase us out of existence. 
In that sense, just like Moses, we're all walking in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, titles, educations, whatever deeds we've done in the past, they really don't matter. The wilderness is the great equalizer in the sense that it shows us how every single one of us is just inadequate. Under the old law, there was no amount of bats, garments, sacrifices that could fully make up and bridge the gap that has been built between us and God because of sin. Thankfully, though, we don't live under the old law anymore. And we'll get to that a little bit later as to why that is such a great news. But first, I want to go back to the text in Exodus and look at how Moses reacts to his encounter with God. So, first, although it's never explicitly spelled out in the text, when God told Moses to remove his sandals, it's kind of implied that Moses complies with that command and takes off his sandals. This in itself is actually a mark of growth in Moses. Uh, If we look back to chapter 2, which we talked about last week, uh, we saw a version of Moses that was quite arrogant and impulsive. Uh, You could call him immature. Uh, If you saw the movie The Prince of Egypt, like the the animated one, uh, the whole movie opens with an adult Moses that is just recklessly having a chariot race with his brother Ramses throughout the city. Uh, That's the Moses we saw last week. The Moses that we see here, though, is completely different. He's had 40 years in the desert to figure out who he is, what his relationship with God is. It's the 40 years that has truly humbled him. Uh, definitely notched him down a few pegs. And while the young Moses, upon hearing that command, might have challenged or pushed back or questioned, uh, the older, wiser Moses just obeys. Removing someone like one sandals is not something that's just as uh, innocuous as like we would think, like, oh, you just removed a piece of clothing. Uh, There's a little bit more meaning in the ancient Near East, ancient Near East culture. Because people would travel long and hard, uh, their feet would gather up all the grimes and the, the sand going around. And for that reason, the feet were considered one of the most unclean part of the body. That's why in the New Testament, you often get references to the washing of feet as of being this, this cultural symbol that people would do uh, to honor each other. Um, but also, him taking off his sandals is actually a recognition of the character of God, the holiness of the God that is standing in front of him. If I'm walking on the street and a stranger tells me, hey, take off your boots right now because you're standing on holy ground, I'm not taking off my boots. I need them to run away fast. But Moses complies, and that implies that he has a recognition that, yes, the person that just gave me this command is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. It's the God of my ancestors, and I have to listen. The other thing that the text mentioned, and this time it's explicitly, is that Moses hides his face, afraid to even look at God. As we saw, down the road, he will be told explicitly that that would have been a really bad idea to look at God directly. But in this case, it's kind of a a reflex, that's a, a natural reaction that he has to the situation. His years of exile has allowed him to contemplate his own inadequacy. And now that he's recognized that the God that's in front of him is the God of Israel, he realizes that he's just not worthy of looking at him. 
It's through humility and reverence for God that Moses hides his face. So these small gestures, that the taking off of the sandal, the hiding of the face, it really becomes a prototype for all the, the different things that we talked about, of people having to provide some form of atonement, to even just indirectly be in the presence of God. It's through humility and reverence, as I said, that Moses is even able to stand there and be called for his mission. But that's the standard under the old law. So then if we're not subject to the old law anymore, and besides, it didn't really seem to work out too well for them in the first place. So what does that mean for us as we're under the new covenant? Well, I want you to take the time to contrast a few images in your, your head. On the one side, we'll look at everything that we've talked about already. Think about Moses having to, to show a lot of growth and humility and reverence to even kind of, sort of, be direct, like indirectly in the presence of God. You also have Aaron and then the, a lineage of high priests that have to go through so many different, hardiest, complicated hoops just to get to be able to enter the Holy of Holies. You also have later in Chronicle the story of Uzzah, who is one of the priests that was tasked with carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, it's on a chariot, the chariot hits a rock, the ark seems like it's about to fall, and Uzzah, out of, I guess, genuine concern, tries to stabilize the ark so it doesn't fall. And the second he touches it, he dies. Contrast this Im these images that really illustrate like a divide, a separation between who we are as sinful human and who God is as perfect in holiness. And then contrast it with all the images that you see from the life of Jesus. You see images of people being healed by simply touching Jesus' garment. You see people being healed by Jesus touching them, rubbing mud on their eyes, being around them. Jesus would not be afraid to, to touch people around him, including people that by Jewish tradition would be deemed unclean. Think about the woman with the fragrant perfume who washes the feet of Jesus. Think about Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Think about Jesus calling to him all the children that are around. In Luke 18, 16, he says, But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. When we look at this contrast, we realize that the old and the new, it's a completely different ballgame. Jesus' life, and subsequently his death, bridges the gap that existed between us and God. A powerful imagery that kind of explains that is what happens immediately upon Jesus' death. In Matthew 27, verse 15 and 51, we read, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. That's the euphemism to say that was his last breath. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The text goes on to talk about earthquakes and rock splitting and the ground shaking, but the direct cause to effect that the author wants to put the emphasis on is Jesus died and the veil was torn. And when we're talking about that curtain in the temple, we're not talking about the curtain that hangs in my mom's living room. We're talking about a really thick felt curtain. 
that would not have just randomly torn out of the, the earthquake. It was like an intentional thing. And so what is the symbolism there? Well, the symbolism is that there's no need for a curtain to separate the holy from the holy of holies. Uh, priests no longer have to do animal sacrifices and dress fancy and take a ton of baths because the sacrifice has been made on our behalf, on everyone's behalf, by Jesus, the Lamb of God, dying on the cross for us. And so that's not to say that all of a sudden we're no longer subject to the, the corruption of sin, uh, but it means that God's sacrifice on the cross has really justified us in the eyes of God. Again, we don't have to sacrifice bulls and goats and sheep and rams because the sacrifice has already been made. And so this sets up on our journey as Christians. It puts us on a path that is often simplified as a three-step process. The first step is when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, when we invite him in our heart. That's called justification. Uh, to put it in simpler words, it's Jesus making the unacceptable, us, acceptable in the eyes of God. But also sets us off on the path of sanctification, which is the long and difficult process that will last a lifetime, where hopefully day after day we get to become a little bit more Christ-like than the day before. It's the life where we live behind a life according to the flesh and we look forward to a life according to the Spirit. And then finally, the last step is glorification, where upon our death, we're finally reunited with God, being able to dwell in His glory in eternity with Him, therefore completing the whole saga that started at the fall, separating us from Him, and ending with Jesus dying on the cross, reuniting us with God.